Today is August 3rd, 2020, and it's my mom Leah's 56th birthday. It's normally a really happy day. We give my mom gifts, and we all eat a little too much of her strawberry cake. This year is bittersweet. My mom was diagnosed with frontal temporal degeneration, or FTD, in 2016. FTD is the most common form of dementia for people under the age of 60. FTD sucks. It steals your loved one away and makes them almost unrecognizable. And sometimes it's hard to remember who they were before. My name is Maria Kent Beers, and my co-host Rachel Martinez and I are pleased to present Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with FTD. We hope this episode leaves you feeling more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. co-host Rachel we met on Instagram right it sounds like a love story I know on Instagram (laughs) and it was instant so at the beginning of learning that my mom had this illness and just feeling so alone and like no one's ever heard of this before I turned social media and I'm like I gotta find my people that know about this and Rachel was one of the people that I started following. She was sharing the story of her father who has FTD and you're just so wonderful. You're so grounded. You have a background in family therapy, correct? Mm -hmm. So I just feel like you have such great perspective and I'm so excited to just like share in this experience with you. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to tell your dad's story. Sure. Let's just start with a little bit more about you and where you're from. Okay. So I was born in Santa Monica, California, and I actually have not left Southern California. I went to um, UCSB for my undergrad. And then I met my husband, my now husband, Nick, and we now live in Playa del Rey with two crazy, crazy little boys who I absolutely adore, and they're making this harder to raise little boys while I'm losing my father, but they're also giving me such a great perspective on life. Right. I can totally relate to that, and we're going to do some side episodes on that as well. Let's get into the story about learning that your dad has had FTD, and um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the beginnings of that journey. I moved home from Santa Barbara in 2008. At this time in my life, I was young. I had just finished my undergrad and I met Nick. So I'm trying to start my life, but I know something just wasn't sitting right and we could not figure it out. I remember 
my mom and I were driving to Lamps Plus and she told me she was leaving my dad. And I cried and I had no idea what was going on. I came home and when I told, you know, mom's leaving, what's going on? His response was to laugh. And now looking back, I'm like, okay, hello, red flag. But he was still able to speak and to formulate a rational thought. So of course I'm like, oh, mom, maybe you're overreacting. I don't want to get involved in the marriage. I'm an only child. So we were a very, very close-knit family, but I still didn't think that was my place to like, let's sit down and have a conversation about your marriage. So from there, it just two years later is when he was officially, officially diagnosed. It was um, a horrible road that we went down. And I guess looking back, it was so filled with like, I don't want to say benchmarks of FTD, but like qualifiers. Like if your, per- if your loved one does this, probably FTD. And right. it was, it, it ended up being the behavioral variant version of it. Tell me a little bit about some of the behaviors, just so we can educate people a little bit on some of the signs, classic signs of FTD. especially behavioral variant. Right. So my dad, before he got sick, he was a very um, compassionate and sensitive male. I say male because I think he was like overly sensitive. Like if there was a line, like every man should be sensitive to about here, he was beyond that. So the biggest thing I saw was sort of like the lack of empathy to me and my mom. During this time, my mom's mom passed away. So my grandma and my dad just could not provide that safe space for my mom physically, emotionally. I remember when she passed, my mom called my dad and said, you know, it happened. She's gone or something to that effect. And my dad's response was, well, should I come to the hospital instead of either a being there with my mom or be, I'm getting in the car right now. I, I'll be, you know, I'll be there as soon as I can. Right. Especially a very sensitive exactly. human being that wouldn't be his normal response. Right. So the lack of empathy and the lack of compassion was pretty severe. And of course it escalated. I don't want to say monthly, but over time, because FTD is progressive, it definitely got worse. We saw, you know, he would completely check out from our family. Another thing I saw that was pretty characteristic of a typical behavioral variant FTD was the ritualistic behavior. So he got up at a certain time without an alarm clock, put on the same clothes he wore the day before, went for a walk, but the same route every day. And it was like, he was just going through the motions. Like, I don't even know if he realized what he was doing. Like, oh, this this sweatshirt stinks. I shouldn't put it on. He didn't have that wherewithal. And how old was he when you think some of these symptoms began? Now that you look back. I would say, well, in 2008, he was 52. I would say it started somewhere like 50-ish, right around there. Okay. One thing that can be, it's maybe like, less on the scale of these are the criteria to meet for um, behavioral variant is drinking. 
he would walk to the same liquor store in the same clothing and get the two same beers three or four times a day. He was never to the point of being fall down drunk or mean or slurring. He was, I don't know, maybe five, nine. He wasn't a big guy, but a beer isn't going to affect him that way anyway. But it was the routine of it. He had to have the same glass and the glass had to be in the same spot. And then he would go stand in the backyard and we had a big window and I remember I would pass it and I would just see him standing there looking not towards me out towards the garden in the same pose every time it was like a statue so that now of course looking back it's like hello how could it not be that but when you're going through it and he even said you know maybe i have a little depression maybe i'm going through a midlife crisis so he was very aware that what he was doing was different I don't know if it's because we were calling him out and he's like, what, what do I say? I don't know. I'm depressed. I have a midlife. I don't know. Or if he could feel that something was different. So those were the big, big things that I remember. But he was never, ever, ever, ever aggressive. He was never mean. He was, if anything, he was just unempathetic and passive. So it was hard. It was a hard time. Um, a lot of unknown, so much anxiety. How do we help somebody who does not want to be helped? One, because he did not want to go to the doctor, which is huge. And two, he was still aware enough to make it seem like he's just going through a hard time. Right. There came a point, I think probably the end, maybe the middle of 2010. He was not paying the mortgage. He was not paying the bills. He was not working. I know some people have um, a loved one who just spends compulsively, just spends. It's very common. And they go into severe debt. Right, right. His wasn't quite like that. He spent his money on the beer. I don't know the full financial scope of my parents, you know, savings. And, but there came a point when my mom said, I can't do this anymore. One, I think watching somebody that you love go down this road and two, the financial aspect. So she, I remember her saying, if you don't go and get help, Rachel and I are leaving. And he said, go pack your stuff and go. And I think we were both kind of like, uh, okay. We weren't expecting that, but we did. We left and she filed for a divorce shortly after moving out. And then his diagnosis came at the end of the year, December of 2010. Can you tell me a little bit about the process getting the diagnosis? It was, it was grueling because my mom and I had already moved out. So what happened was we lived down the street from uh, elementary school And my dad went on one of his morning walks and he came across a little, I don't know if it was a boy or a girl and said, can I have your lunch money? And the little boy said, no. And at this point, my dad probably wasn't showering very much, probably didn't get a haircut. I'm assuming he had a beard. I'm sure he didn't look like a typical guy in our neighborhood. So the little boy, I think, turned quickly and my dad reached out to kind of 
I don't want to say the word grab because that does sound violent, but he reached for the little boy for the lunch money and a teacher saw, called the police, and my dad was arrested. They took him to Torrance. That's where I grew up. Torrance Courthouse. But the catch there was that my, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a judge at that courthouse. So they put the names together and they realized who my dad was. And I think I'm almost positive somebody at that courthouse said, something isn't right here. He needs to get neurologically evaluated. But the only place they can do that is at Twin Towers, which is not, not where you'd want your loved one. They have a whole floor dedicated to mental health and I assume the inmates that are not in general population because of a mental disability are on this floor. So my dad was checked out, nothing. He's going through a hard time. We're going to sentence him to a halfway house. That's where he's going to fulfill his, it wasn't even a crime. I noticed at this point, his response to my questions um, when we would talk on the phone was very parroted. So I would say, how are you feeling? Are you feeling great? Yep, I'm feeling clean and sober every time I would talk to him. And at this point, I would still say things like, you're not a drug addict. <laughs> that's, that's not, I didn't feel like that response came close to what he was there for. So that is when the big behavior began. He started eating from the trash. He was really withdrawn. So they called my aunt, my dad's sister, and recommended another mental evaluation. And he was diagnosed at all of you through a PET scan, an MRI, and then the neurological um, tests that they perform. I actually just got his answers. We decided, actually, it was more me. Um, I wanted to donate my dad's brain when he passes away. And to do that, you need every test and every doctor's note. So I got to read a lot of his answers. And the rational, if you spill a box of crayons on the floor, what's going to happen? Normally it would be, they would, you know, fall out and splatter and they, some would roll, some would go over here and you would clean them up. He said, I would draw a picture. Another one, who's the president? Obama. So he knew facts, but he couldn't formulate, well, think beyond crayons. What do I do with crayons? I color. So I'm just going to draw a picture. With all of the tests, I think they just kind of filled in the blanks and realized this is as close to a diagnosis that makes sense as we're going to get. And I think when they did the PET scan, they saw a lot of atrophy in his frontal lobe. So he checked all the boxes for it. It was a long process and placement and a lot of people working together. But again, I know there are people out there who experience so much worse. I think the hardest part for me was knowing that he was in jail and knowing that he had to be on a floor with 
people who are absolutely unstable. Um, what happened to him there? You know, what did he see? That's always been a big question of mine. So, so terrible. Yeah, it wasn't. And how did you feel once you got the diagnosis? Did you feel any relief? I definitely felt relieved. It was bittersweet. I knew, okay, he's not, it's not that he doesn't love me or my mom or he's, you know, losing interest in us. It was, he's losing his mind. He doesn't know what's going on. Of course, it was a little bit of a death sentence because this is not something that you can cure, but it answered a lot of the questions and it led us to finding the right care for him. A halfway house is not the right place for somebody like my dad. Jail is not a a good place for somebody with this disease. Again, he was never aggressive. So he never had to be like restrained or put in. I know there's a big men's facility down in San Diego for FTD patients who are aggressive. My dad, that was never even an option for us. So that, I guess, is a good thing. Of course, it brought up parts of me, you know, what's, is this going to happen to me? Is this going to happen to my kids? So that was kind of scary when I started to do a little research on FTD. I know there's a big genetic component, but it was, it was definitely like I could take a little bit more of a deep breath, but I knew, and I still know that he's never coming back. He's never going to be who he was that's the hard pill to swallow. I'm glad we got the answers, but the loss is still so fresh. Of course. Yeah. So it was, a, it, it seemed like it was two weeks and we're like, oh, he has FTD, but it was months and months of tests and redoing the MRI and, you know, putting the dye in this time and the PET scan and do it this way. And I, so it wasn't just, oh, he, one PET scan, we know it's FTD. It was multiple right. different doctors looking at it, social workers trying to find placement. And did they interview your family? Because I know a lot of times they gather a lot of information from the caregivers and loved ones to kind of put the pieces together as well. They, when my aunt took him to all of you for one of his tests, they interviewed her as well. My grandmother, my dad's mom, had um, supernuclear palsy, which is also under the FTD umbrella. I think it's a different gene that mutates differently, but her behaviors were a little bit more bizarre in terms of um, she'd call my dad and say, I'm waiting at the pool for your dad to get home from work and I'm watching little Chris swim in the water and that was not happening. Right. So hers was more of a visual thing. I don't know if my dad ever had anything like that, but that in itself is a little um, anxiety ridden because she has the gene. He has the gene. Does that mean I do too? Right. I know obviously my aunt, his sister is a great person to talk to because she grew up 
with him and with my grandmother. That's the history that she offered. I think they spoke a lot about my grandmother and her um, symptoms. And then she was much older. She was in her late 60s, early 70s when she started showing signs. So I think that's another part of it is my dad was so young. That's a hard pill to swallow is what he missed out on. Of course. Um, And that's the burden of this disease because it attacks so young most of the time. You're so brave for sharing all that information. I think it's really important for us to share our stories and we'll be interviewing some others as well because um, FTD can present itself in so many different ways, Mm -hmm. um, which is really fascinating (laughs) and terrible at the same time. You know, I think our hope is through this podcast and sharing the stories that we can educate people Mm -hmm. on the different things that they can look for or just for their own knowledge to understand. You know, if they see someone who is younger, but behaving strangely mm-hmm. and you know your first instinct would be like well they're just nuts right well no you can have dementia at a young age and you never know what other people are going through you know I think if right. people accepted and understood what this disease was it would be it would have been less awkward for my family for sure 100 percent I thought FTD was a flower delivery service. Like even if you type it in Google, it's flower delivery service. Right. Not this horrible brain disease that attacks people in the middle of their life. Right. So we're going to shift gears because our mission, I said our, Mm -hmm. our in this together, (laughs) our mission is to share stories of FTD to educate people on the symptoms and the diagnosis and ultimately, you know, how things progress, but also to tell the stories of who these people really were before the illness. Because I think one of the hardest things is that who they are just really slips away. They turn into a totally different person and it's so, so hard to wrap your mind around it. So Mm -hmm. I think to honor them and also to find a little bit of healing for ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can tell the story of who they truly, truly are. So why don't you start your, your father's name is Frank, correct? His name is Frank. Mm -hmm. Frank. Frank. So tell me a little bit about where Frank grew up, what he did for a living. Sure. He was born in Well, he lived in Inglewood growing up, Inglewood, California. He met my mom, I think in like the second or the third grade. So they've known each other forever. So beautiful. I know. He went to Inglewood High, graduated, moved to Santa Barbara. We both went to UCSB, obviously at different times. He majored in English and so did I. He... I think after Inglewood High School is when my parents started dating. So my mom would drive up and visit my dad on the weekends. So they had a long distance relationship. I mean, two hours, it's not across the globe, but he, after he graduated, he moved back. 
he then decided, him and a group of his friends decided to travel across the United States. So they got a old VW bus and they left California and they hit every state. They sort of zigzagged back and forth. I think that took a year. Shortly after he um, proposed to my mom, he was a butcher for a while and my mom got pregnant with me and they realized they needed a little more financial stability. So he went into real estate and he was in real estate for as long as I can remember. He was, in my opinion, a great real estate agent. He was actually towards the end of his career. He was the top producer in our area. So he was very successful at it. And I think that's because he was a a people person. He just really went above and beyond for his clients. But he always managed to make at least me feel like I came first. Like no matter what, it was his family. He was extremely passionate about music and he loved to play the piano and the guitar. He was the type that could hear a song and then sit at the piano and just play it. I was, I still am a horrible sleeper. (laughs) So my parents had a big black piano and they put it in my nursery and my dad would sit there for hours to get me to sleep by playing the piano. And the minute he would stop, my eyes would pop open and he would sit back down and play and play and play. It's so um, sweet. I, I know. Um, and now as a mom, I know exactly that feeling when you're like, oh, they're finally asleep and their little eyes open and you're like, oh my gosh, I just spent the last 45 minutes rocking you and now you're awake. But that never faced him. At least I didn't see it. So he loved music. He loved people. He was really in, he loved to read. He was an English major, Santa Barbara. But I think his biggest and most outwardly visible love was my mom. I mean, my husband now has big, big shoes to fill. He does a great job, I should say. But my dad really set the bar high for what I expect in a husband and how he treated my mom. It was just the three of us. I was an only child. So he was the doting father. Um, my mom was a human resource manager. So my dad had a more flexible schedule growing up. So when I would come home from school, he was there with my little snack ready, ready to help me with my homework, with laundry going. I mean, he was Mr. Mom for a while. And I think deep down, he really enjoyed it. I don't know if he'd ever admit that. Oh, I want to work. I think he thoroughly enjoyed the time that we got together. He was just all around. I, I always knew what I was going to get from him. He never got outraged. He never got sad. He never got, I mean, I'm sure he was sad in his life, but it was never like, Ooh, what kind of mood is dad going to be in today? He was even keel. And now that I'm a parent, I don't know how he did that. Because I don't know either. <laughs> oh my gosh. So he, he was a, a genuinely just very happy person. 
And if he set his mind to something, it would get done. Nothing got him going. It just fit in. So I try to mirror that <laughs> as a parent. Again, half the time I'm screaming at my kids. Half the time I'm like, let's just sit and be zen like, like my dad would. I don't know how he did it. So he was... He I was, love him so much. Can I just say I love him so much? He is. And even now in the thick, I mean, he's, if this was a spectrum, he's probably closer to the end than anything. He still is just peaceful. Like when I visit him before COVID, it was calming and just nothing got him. I mean, when I would walk in, he would definitely let out a... Yell, but it was never like uppity. It was never anxious, or he was always just across the board calm. Yeah, we can all learn from that for sure. Oh my gosh! I'm like, Dad, can you kind of send some of that my way? (laughs) Like, geez. So yeah, he was. He is. That's another part. It's hard. hard It's so hard. I I do the same thing and. They're still here, but they're right. not, you know? Right. He was, no, he is happy. He is funny, but it's not the same. It's right. Not, he's not who he was. So yeah, he, he lived in California his whole life. And I think he was content. He never wanted for more. He was just, he was somebody. He loved being a dad. He loved your mom. He yes. was great at his job. Yes. Yes. All of it. But I think one thing I remember most is the way he loved me, but he loved my mom a a really special way that I don't think we see a lot anymore. He was focused on her and he would warm up her coffee mug before he would pour the hot coffee in it. So she didn't have to hold anything cold. Oh my goodness. Thoughtful. And really went out of his way to make people feel special and seen and understood. And I don't think we see a lot of that anymore either. No, no. It's crazy. Obviously you've told me about your dad before, but more, the more I learn, he's so similar to my mom and who he really is. They're beautiful, beautiful souls for sure. And Clearly they are because their children want to just speak about it to everyone who will listen. That's right. Spread it out there. (laughs) And we're just not going to like take this and say, all right, our parents have dementia. This sucks. Goodbye. We're like, no, we need people to know who they are. We need people to know how devastating this disease is. And we need to get people's attention because we're not going to just let them die in rain, you know? Right. Right. And I think that's another tricky part is when we say dementia, people are like, oh, so he doesn't remember you. Right. I'm like, it's not that kind of dementia. It's a different, it's your frontal lobe. It's affecting completely different parts. And I don't know because he can't speak. I don't know what he remembers and what he doesn't. But the, you know, even Hollywood portrays the dementia characters as kind of loony and out right. of touch. Right. That's not who he was. He was never like, oh, I'm going to go walk into this ocean. And he was walking into the pool. He was with it until 
he wasn't, but it was never like, it, that's it, a really good point. It is very, very, it's, it is very different. Yeah. I just love him. And you send me pictures and I just feel like I know him. He was a, he was a really special guy. That's a hard thing that I've, Nick came into my life. My husband is Nick. Um, he came into my life when I was losing my dad. We didn't know exactly what was going on. I met Nick in 2008 when I moved home and kind of noticed this shift in my dad. So he never got to know him without any FTD. So I remember when I introduced them, I'm thinking, this isn't really Frank. This is my dad and I know this person, but this isn't who you would have met 10 years ago. Right. So that's hard. And obviously my kids have no idea who right. he is. I don't. But you will tell them. You will tell I them. I will. I will. And we keep his persona going through our house as often as possible. But there's something missing. I mean, even the beautiful days, my son just graduated from preschool. And I'm thinking like, oh, this is so perfect but it's missing just a percentage of being a hundred percent Christmas morning, holidays, my birthday. They're all still really fun and great. And now that I have kids, it's a whole nother level, but it's a struggle to just enjoy what's in front of me because there's always a piece missing inside of me. Right. And that's, that's something that I struggle with. And I tell my kids about my dad as often as I can. And eventually when they have the um, attention span to sit, we can watch old family movies and stuff like that. But they don't, they visit him in the nursing home or they have a handful of times. It's a big production when the four of us go out because my kids right. are just, they love to run. So taking them into a quiet nursing home sometimes isn't my um, picture of fun. So uh, when we do go, we take my dad out to his little patio and we throw a ball and my kids look for animals and slugs. And I talk to my dad, but I don't, I don't want to remember him this way, but I want to remember them together. So that's another tricky balance that I have to, you know, find, find my way through. I feel um, the same. I, I hear exactly what you're saying. Yeah. I don't want to picture him sitting in a wheelchair, not knowing or what to do with a ball, but I want to remember my kids passing it to him and playing with him. And the hardest new development is when he does see my kids, he cries and that hmm. I, that I just can't tolerate. I mean, I do because it's beautiful, but it's the heart just shatters when I see it. And he's crying of happiness. That's what I, I'm hoping that's what it is because if it's sad tears of things that. No, you know, you know, your dad, it sounds like. It sounds like it's happy. It really does. And that's what I tell myself. But of course, I 
have to go through all sides, being the devil's advocate. What if it's too painful for him to see me with my kids and know that he's not a part of it? I don't know if his brain works that way. I don't know if he even has that wherewithal to think that kind of a thought, but just those big blue eyes looking at me with tears in them is like, breaks my heart. Yeah. It's like soul crushing, but also like so beautiful that he's still in there. And if that's the only way he can show me like, wow, this is so gorgeous watching these little tiny humans that you created. Right. That's what I, that's what I get. I've explained the exact same kind of interactions where my mom reaches out her hand to Liam and Mm -hmm. he kisses her knees because she's in her wheelchair. And I feel so happy. And then I feel so deeply sad Mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah. It's It's amazing that you feel that at the same time. It's so complicated. And I think that as I don't know, I could be wrong, but I think that as we look back, we will, even though this time is so complicated, I think that we will be so grateful Mm -hmm. that they even interacted in any, in any way. Right. You know? Right. And I wanted to go back to, I, when you were explaining that dementia is not, FTD is not what people typically think of when they think of dementia. Right. I have this one woman who always comes up to me at coffee hour at church when I'm sitting with my mom and says, do you think she remembers you? Which I don't know if why she thinks that's an appropriate thing to ask me. But anyway, she, she's, she's very sweet, but she comes up and says the same thing every time. And I have to explain to her, it's not, it's not a memory thing. Right. With my mom. I mean, maybe at this point, who knows? Cause we really don't know at this point, but what you were saying about how you walk in the room and your dad reacts differently. When I walk into church and there's a hundred people in there and my mom's sitting at the front and her eyes light up when she sees me and in particular, my husband, she's obsessed with my husband. When her eyes light up, I know she knows who I am. And also if she doesn't, and maybe it's just familiar face or whatever it is that's Mm -hmm. going through her brain. I, it makes me happy. She's reacting and I'm going to choose to believe that she's aware of what's going on right now, but truly no one can tell us. Doctors have no idea. Exactly. Right. I mean, you live in LA. I live in Boston. We have incredible medical care where my mom is being seen. It's like one of the only FTD units in all of the country, the top hospital in the world. They cannot tell me What she knows and what she doesn't know. Yep, I know. The brain is, it's, the brain is such a double-edged sword. I mean, it's such a great thing and it's so, you know, complex. And then it's leaving you with all of these unanswered, we're supposed to know everything. We're all knowing, aren't we? Why can't we figure this out? What's funny though, is my dad feels, I can only assume, the same way about Nick. Whenever we go and visit, his eyes shoot to Nick. And I'm like bringing him a smoothie and a new shirt and body wash and <laughs> jumping up and down. And he's like staring at Nick, putting his hand out. I'm like, 
Oh, what am I? Makes me happy. It makes me happy too. But also, Dad, hello. Like I haven't seen you. Want to say hello? Wait, that's the exact exact same thing that I say to my mom. What am I, chopped liver? Yeah, it's crazy. We went down to visit my dad for his birthday, which was two weeks ago. A couple days ago. ago. Oh no, the fifteenth. And um, we walked up. We can't go in because of COVID. We walked up to the glass. I take my mask down so he can recognize me. Looks at me looks directly over at Nick. I'm like, I wave. I'm like singing happy birthday. And he's just staring at Nick. So there you go. He does. I mean, he met him at a time when he was already sick, but he knows he's your husband and he's probably so happy to see how happy you are and that you're in good hands. Right. And that's what I think sometimes is he like saying, thank you to him. Like, thank you for taking care of her and for making her happy and for giving her these two little boys. And, you know, I think that's even when he was uh, not where he is now, he could still speak not well. He would always put his hand out. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. Good to see you, Nick. Good to see you, Nick. And I'd be scared. I'm like, dad, do you want to give me a hug or say hello to me? (laughs) Here I am. Remember me? (laughs) It's the same exact way over here. That's so funny. I know. Oh my goodness. I know. I I love your dad so much. Me too. Um, So when you think about how he would want to be remembered, I know you told me he would want to be remembered as a musician, but is there anything else (laughs) that you think he would Um, want people to know? I think the biggest is a a family man. I think he would want to be remembered as somebody who put my mom and who put me first. And I think he would really want to be remembered as a place where people feel at home. And I think he would want to be remembered as compassionate and gentle I think those were all really important to him. Just seeing the way that he was parenting me really makes it even more known that he was just a calm and I don't want to say quiet, like shh, but just a very soft spot for me and for my mom and his brothers and sisters and his parents. He really, he just went above and beyond for people. And I think he was the type of person who, when he would get sick with a cold or whatever, he wouldn't want to burden anybody. So he would have a high fever. He'd be vomiting. He would be coughing. And he would get up and take the trash out because he wouldn't want my mom to do that. So I think deep down, I think maybe if he has that rational brain still, he knew what was happening a little bit. He knew that something wasn't right and he didn't want to put us through anything more than what we had already seen. So when my mom said, you know, if you don't get help or you don't go see the doctor, Rachel and I are leaving. And his response wasn't like, no, please. It was okay. Let's get you packed up. So I think he would be the person to put other people first. And that's something that is very special. When he passes away, I don't think, I know it'll be hard because it's the final, it's it. But 
I'm happy with our relationship and I'm happy with the time we spent and the memories that we've made. What I'm not happy with is the memories we haven't made. And he wasn't there at my wedding and he wasn't there for the birth of my kids. That is something that I struggle with more than, well, maybe I didn't love him enough as a kid. I know he was loved. I know he had a great life, but this suffering is nothing I would wish on my my enemies. It's horrible and inhumane almost that he has to live this way. But it's also, it's humbled me a little bit and it's um, really made me slow down. I tend to go zero to a hundred red fire. And this experience is softened me um, and made me realize that, yes, life is short, but it, it doesn't have to be bad. You can accept the good that comes out of it. And that's something that he would preach to me growing up. Just look for the good. There is always good in something. Don't focus on the bad. Don't dwell in the dark. Get out and see the good. And I think that is how he would want to be remembered, is just looking for the light and seeing the good. That is so perfect. The end. The end. (laughs) So for the final portion of our episode, do you want to tell everyone what we're going to do? Sure. So now that you got to listen to story about my dad, I think it's important. And Maria and I discussed when we came up with the idea of this podcast having our participants read something that their loved one has written. So this is my dad's letter to me. Um, I was up in Santa Barbara feeling homesick and he um, wrote me this. Hi, Rachel. I just came back from a walk through Paradise Park. The sun had just set but the sky was still light and the trees were silhouettes. It's beginning to feel like autumn. I was doing a lot of thinking too. I know that this transition isn't easy for you and the distance is far. I love the fact that our little family is so close, so homesickness is normal, but it goes away, especially if you stay busy. Take this time to reflect on where you've been, your relationships, where you want to go, and what you want to seek in life. Be selfish and have some me time. This is your opportunity to really take charge of your own life. I think you should get a job so that you feel connected. I teach classes for my company because I like the feeling of making a contribution. That in itself is the reward. It's more than just money. Try not to be too quick to judge either. Everybody has their story, their pain, their aspirations, and their dreams. Listen to the people you meet and just enjoy them, even if you're not all going down the same path. You'll meet a lot of people that are in transition just like you. Speaking of meeting people, a little romance wouldn't hurt either. Keep your eyes open. You just never know. We've talked about how everything has its own pace in life. Know always, daughter, that you can come home whenever you want. Your mom and I will be your base for support always. Knowing this, have some fun and explore what you want. Don't worry so much. Call us and write us and text us often. I'm so proud that you're my daughter. 
you've grown up to be a person of character, strength, and integrity. The world needs more people like you. Spread your wings. I love you bigger than the sky. Rachel and I want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for listening to this episode. We will be releasing new episodes each week on Mondays. Next week is the story of me and my mother, Leah. If you want to connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast. We also have set up a Facebook group called Remember Me Podcast. Feel free to share your stories, comments, anything you want to share with us. We're here to listen. You can also donate to the AFTD, the Association for FTD, on our Classy page. It is give.classy.org slash Remember Me Podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of this journey and for listening. We appreciate it so much. This podcast is produced by me, Maria Beers, and Rachel Martinez. And the beautiful music you hear is by the Billy Cat.